0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making emails safer for business. Mimecast.com.
1: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In his 1968 campaign for president, Richard Nixon pointed to what he viewed as a very serious problem in the country, the crime rate. He said, Americans should be worried. This is an ad from the campaign, and the voice you're going to hear is Nixon's.
2: In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security.
1: By 1972, when he was running for re-election, Nixon said, and this is a quote, "...we have succeeded in stopping the spiraling growth in criminal activity." But by that time, he had also started a war on drugs, and he portrayed drug users as, in his words, a serious national threat. So the war on crime and on drugs pushed forward. When Nixon declared victory on crime in 1972, there were about 300,000 people in jails and prisons in the US, and that number had been pretty steady through the 50s and 60s. Now, in a population that hasn't even come close to doubling since 1972, There are seven times the number of people locked up, and the crime rate, which did rise higher in the 70s and 80s and 90s, is even lower now than it was in 1972. Much lower, actually, if you look at just violent crimes. But in the last few decades, a new industry has emerged as part of the effort to deal with crime, the private prison industry. How did private companies ever get into the business of running prisons? And does the demand for growth from shareholders, for example, which would be a concern of a burger chain or a clothing retailer, how does that pressure affect public policy? Lauren Brook Eisen is senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. And Mark Maurer is the executive director of The Sentencing Project and the author of Race to Incarcerate. Welcome to you both. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: Thank you for having us. So, um, Mark, I'm going to start with you. How did private prisons become an industry? I mean, this seems like, you know, a government function. How did it in the first place kind of get opened up to private people, to private companies, to contractors, that sort of thing?
0: Well, it starts back in the 1980s. This was the time that the War on Drugs was really being launched in a massive way. The tough on crime movement was in its heyday with the adoption of harsh penalties, more people going to prison. Uh, Many of the years of the 1980s, we saw prison growth of 10% or more in a single year. Hmm. So states were scrambling. They had overcrowded prisons. They were trying to get money to buy new prisons to contain the population. And along came this group of new entrepreneurs who made an an opening to state and federal governments and said, uh, we've got a solution for you. We can build and fill prisons, and we can help save you money. We'll keep these people locked up, and it'll be a win-win situation.
1: Lauren Brooke, as far as you can tell, or as far as any of us could tell if we went to visit a private prison versus a public prison, How are they different? Um, You know, what is a private prison like and and how does it function? Um, Private prisons
2: and government-run prisons don't look very different from the outside or from the inside. And I think at the end of the day, how these facilities are so different is that one is state-run and is part of the government versus in these private prisons – a CEO of these corporations is making a profit, and the two largest private prison corporations in this country are CoreCivic, it used to be called CCA, they just rebranded and they're mm. now named CoreCivic, and Geo Group. they're both publicly traded on the stock exchange, and they earned a combined $4 billion in 2016 alone. That's more than Airbnb, Snapchat, Pandora, and the Dallas Cowboys mm. combined. Wow. So we're talking about significant profits. Because private industry is making uh, so much money off of our nation's predilection for incarceration, we should be seeing um, you know, performance outcomes that are just much better that beat the recidivism rates, for example, that you would see in a government operated prison. And are we? We're not seeing that. Okay. So recidivism rates in this country are uh, incredibly high. Between fifty to seventy five percent of those who leave our jails and our prisons return within three years. Wow. Our recidivism rates in this country are very high, whether you're at a public prison or a private prison. But we also just don't have the very um, specific data to tell if there's a real difference between outcomes in private versus public prisons.
1: Do either of you know if prisoners who have been to both private and public prisons have talked about any difference that they can see? So. I've
2: interviewed current and former inmates and families for the book that I'm working on, and that's the question that I asked every single one of them. And most of them note that they were allowed more freedom in the sense that they had Xboxes and they had, um, you know, they they could buy more things and they could trade things with, with their fellow inmates. And there maybe wasn't enough programming at those facilities and nobody wanted trouble and the corrections officers didn't want trouble. And so they sort of looked the other way. You know, a couple of the inmates I interviewed had been convicted for um, sex crimes. You know, one of them was child pornography. I think it was just looking at pictures. Um, so in Vermont, he actually wasn't allowed to use computers at the prisons. But when he was sent to Michigan to a private prison there, still under the Vermont Department of Corrections contracts, um, you know, he was allowed to use a computer. they just the rules seem to be a little lax. And also the the private prisons cherry pick the inmates. And so oftentimes they won't take inmates who suffer from AIDS. They won't take inmates who are sick or elderly. So it's it's
1: pretty hard to compare. Really? They get to decide what inmates they're going to house in their prisons? In a lot of cases, yes. That's really interesting.
0: Additionally, the states have had very mixed feelings about the contracting. So they've contracted with private prisons, but they haven't felt entirely comfortable with it So they give them uh, people in prison who are designated as uh, minimum security rather than medium or maximum because they're not quite sure they Mm -hmm. trust them with uh, more difficult management issues.
1: So you talked about private prisons making hundreds of millions of dollars in, in pure profit. How are they able to do that and the government isn't or is the government making a lot of money? Off of prison? Are they just more efficient, private prisons? Describe to me how that money is made. So, what happens is, you know, they look to cut
2: costs. And most of the costs in running, operating a prison are in staffing costs. And so they may pay lower wages to their correctional officers. Uh, these staff members, these correctional officers, are not unionized, so there aren't those added costs of pension. And, you know all of the sort of costs that a union may require and they look for other ways to cut staffing costs and other costs around the facility um, and that's really at the end of the day how these corporations are able to make money
1: Mark are there any hard numbers about in the long run 10 20 30 years down the line is it more cost effective to go with a private prison or should a state you know if they want to build a prison just saying look we're going to build it ourselves, we're going to issue the bonds, uh, you know, whatever needs to be done.
0: Yeah. Well, the best research to date shows is there's no significant difference. There was a study some time ago, the General Accounting Office looked at some of the research out there on private prisons. They essentially concluded sometimes they were a little bit cheaper, sometimes a little more expensive, more or less, they were roughly the same. And Remember, this is just the cost to the state. So the private prison companies are saying, you know, we will lock people up at less cost to you. They're also saying to their stockholders and we'll also make a profit for you, too. Uh, As Lauren Brooke pointed out, most of the cost of any prison are in staffing, which means if you try to do cheaper and if you try to make a profit, um, your staff are less well-trained. You have higher turnover among your staff. Mm -hmm. All the kinds of situations that generally can lead to some very serious problems because having well-trained and experienced staff in an institution filled with tension as prisons are is really critical to operating uh, a safe and secure prison for both prisoners and guards.
1: Hmm. I'm Karen Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Lauren Brook Eisen and Mark Maurer about the rise of the private prison industry. Mark, let's talk about the current state of the private prison industry. We saw under President Obama a kind of push to get the government out of the business of using private prisons, private companies to build prisons. And, and, you know, before the election in 2016, the stock prices of the major private prison companies were really hurt. But they've rebounded a lot um, since the Trump administration came to power. And I just wonder where you see private prisons and the, the sort of public administration's decision about whether or not to use private prisons, where is that headed?
0: Well, I think there are two different lenses to look at. One is through the federal government, the other is at the state level. The federal government, for a variety of reasons, has been much more committed to privatization than the state's. And this has been true both in Democratic and Republican administrations. But Last August, the Justice Department announced that it would be phasing out the use of private prisons in the federal system, and they said they were doing so for two reasons. First, there was an inspector general report of the contracted facilities that found they had significantly more problems with safety and security in the private prison than they did in the public prisons. And secondly, there's been a substantial decline in the federal prison population in recent years. Years, so it allows the uh, government to phase out these contracts because the beds aren't really needed so much.
2: Yes, and on that point, CC, uh, CoreCivic, and Geo Group stocks soared in the immediate days after Trump won the election. Um, in fact, CNBC called Trump's election nothing short of a game changer for the beleaguered private prison contractor industry. The stocks have greatly increased even after Attorney General Sessions' memo uh, rolling back the Obama Justice Department's guidance on private prisons. And I think that that memo is really telling. It was a one-paragraph memo to the Bureau of Prisons reversing this guidance. And there was was no evidence. There were no statistics. There was no real reason for this reversal. Um, But I think I think that is sort of a harbinger to come, and I think some of the states may be taking their cue from what's happening at the federal level and um, certainly feeling a little bit more comfortable to, um, you know, look at these contracts again, and when they do face overcrowding issues in their states, think about how they can relieve that through contracting with private prisons. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens at the state level. I think they are connected somewhat.
1: Let's talk about uh, the diversification of the private prison industry because their services are not just for people who are convicted of crimes anymore. And so um, as we look at this future in which potentially there are going to be more immigrants detained, I know the ACLU has said something like half of the people who are detained, uh, who are immigrants, are in facilities run by private companies. I mean. I think we sort of imagine uh, border patrol agents keeping people in these vast areas. uh, But a lot of those areas are private spaces.
2: Yeah. So over half of the ICE facilities are contracted to uh, private corporations to run, and those are civil immigration Mm -hmm. detention centers. Most of those are along the southern border, so Texas, Arizona, California those civil detention centers house families um, sometimes, women and children. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those people have not been convicted of a crime. They might be there, um, you know, waiting for, you know, citizenship or, you know, they may have a lot of these people have fled their own countries um, because of totalitarian governments or sexual abuse or other sorts of abuse that's happening to them in their home countries. So the private prison contractors Um, really do have a huge footprint in that world. And I think, you know, given the Trump administration's stance on cracking down on undocumented citizens in this country, um, a lot of people are concerned that the footprint of private contractors will grow in terms of operating and building more of these types of facilities.
1: Mark, are we alone in the world in using private prisons? Are there other countries who follow this same model?
0: Well, there are a growing number of countries that are beginning to do this, but it's an American-driven movement. So the, the same mm. corporations that have established the industry here, now see the rest of the world as their sort of global market. Uh, so you can oh, find these companies running prisons in Australia and Scotland, a number of other countries now. The
1: same companies, the, these America-based companies. These American-based okay. companies, exactly,
0: mm-hmm. exactly. And the ideology and the financial offers they make are very similar to what they've done here. Uh, they say, here's a good deal, we'll do it cheaper, and we'll take care of all your problems, mm-hmm. that sort of things,
1: what happens? I have this question for both of you, but um, Lauren Brook Eisen from the Brennan Center, let me start with you. Like, why should we care about private prisons? If it's an industry that can do things in an efficient way, you know, maybe they pay slightly lower wages. Um, But maybe that makes things more efficient. If the recidivism rate isn't all that different from public prisons, should we care at all that there is a private prison industry and that, you know, we lean on it for maybe some of the things that used to be part of public services? That's a great
2: question. And a lot of people who study data, they they say just that. They say, why should we care? We're talking about a little more than 126,000 people uh, who are inmates in privately owned or managed facilities across the country. It's about 8% of the state and federal inmates. That doesn't account for those who are in the private immigrant detention facilities. What's happened is that private prisons have sort of become this ground zero of the anti-mass incarceration movement. You know, The closure of these prisons uh, represents a concrete step that people can take to sort of reduce our reliance on incarceration. And, you know, your question is a great one because what does it mean to have people in a private facility? What does it mean to have government outsource this? And sort of the elephant in the room in in operating prisons for profit is that recidivism is financially lucrative to the private
1: prison industry. And Mark Maurer, do you want to take that question on? I mean, why should we care? That private prisons exist. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it starts
0: with again a fundamental conception of government, and uh, I think there's certain elements of government that we should not be contracting out. You know, someone take an extreme example: should we contract out the foreign policy of the United States to a profit-making company? Well, it's ludicrous, but um, you know, uh, there are clearly some lines where we say, no, this is clearly a government function, and when it comes to Uh, Keeping human beings in cages, which after all is what prisons are doing, to contract that out to a profit-making company just, I don't think, feels right. It also, because of the potential, huge potential for problems developing in prisons, whether private or public, it adds one additional layer to any kind of oversight that we as citizens might have. In a public prison, we can go to the corrections commissioner, journalists can try to get inside prison to look Mm. at conditions. Now, if we've got a private prison, maybe located in a different state than the contract comes from, there's just inherently going to be less oversight of what goes on there, and I think that's a real problem for all of us.
1: Mark Maurer is the executive director of The Sentencing Project and the author of Race to Incarcerate. And Lauren Brook Eisen is senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you so much.
1: We've got more about the early entrepreneurs in the private prison industry, who they were, and why they saw opportunity. That's at our website, innovationhub.org.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow cambridgesavings.com slash csb1.